Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Alone Podcast. We're excited again to have our guest this week. Today we have Dr. Teresa Emmerich Camper from Season 8 of Alone. So Teresa, thank you so much. I know you've got a lot going on. You said you just came back from Israel and then I think you're turning around in a day or two and you're coming stateside. So you've got a lot going on, but thank you for finding some time to sit down and, and share your stories with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. And yep, busy bee right now, but that's all good. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, All right. Well, I guess my name, as you said, was uh, Dr. Teresa Emmerich Camper. I just go by Teresa. We can dispense with all the doctor stuff. It's there, but it's not, you know, the center of my personality. So I am an experimental archaeologist. I have a PhD in prehistoric animal skin tanning technologies, and I specialize um, in the realm of leather analysis in the academic sphere. So I analyze leather artifacts to look at things like what tannage technology was used to produce them, manufacturing sequences, types of thread, this sort of thing, um, within sort of the survival, bushcraft, primtech, whatever you want to, to label that um, sphere. I specialize in Stone Age skills. Okay. that It's funny, like, as I was reading up, I was super excited. And I'm kind of a, a nerd, right? And so w weird things get me really excited. And I can only hope that people listening weird things get them excited as well because um, i i'm super excited to talk about kind of your background there and i guess we'll jump in so that's kind of your current you know who you are and, and i'm sure as we get later on we'll probably get into your statuses you know from us to uk but i, I am a little bit curious want to make sure so those that have paid attention to the show and anyone who's been around online um, I mean, it sounds like you're doing pretty good, but did you spend some time brushing up on your fake accent before you came on the podcast? Absolutely. Because I want to make sure that all those astute <laughs> people listening that can tell your fake accent, um, that they can't do comparison to the show, to the podcast and, and catch you in your, in your lie. Oh, well, I mean, you can catch me in anything you like. You got a hybrid accent like mine. You're going to sound absolutely bizarre no matter what comes out of your mouth no matter where you are so hey i've been brushing up on it for 13 years and i will continue to for as long as i live here <laughs> there you go yeah it's funny so we were talking offline before and the the amount of i don't even know criticism it's not even critic it's just weird of, of people that claim that teresa's accent was fake on the show <laughs> like amidst everything else you're experiencing on alone right like you know, everything that you're doing out there in this most stressful, most like compressed experience of your life, you're going to be paying attention to a fake accent. So absolutely. It was definitely a priority of mine whilst out there <laughs> trying to film with all those crazy cameras, whilst cursing at the cameras and trying not to curse on camera was to make sure that a British word here and there just kind of popped in there by accident. Yeah, it's so funny. Um, I guess we'll ask a question. Do you find like what's your what's your default, or is your default just right in the middle? Like if you get really worked up, or <laughs> if you're like you know Absolutely who are you? Not. So if I'm really excited, I'll be more American. This is what I'm told. I don't. I can't actually hear it myself. I can hear it when it's recorded. I can certainly hear it when it's filmed. I mean, watching yeah. alone back for myself was just as funny as it was for everybody else. 
It's like, oh, God, I think I said water three different ways in one episode. But, <laughs> but yeah, funny. if I'm lecturing or if I'm um, doing the things that I've done for, say, the last 10 or 12 years where it's mostly been based in Britain, then my accent is slightly more on the, the English spectrum, the British spectrum. But Well, you, not... you realize you just, you just fueled the fire, right? When you're trying <laughs> to sound academic and professional, you go British. Absolutely. When you're trying to sound excited or, or excitable, you go American. So that's funny. Um, yeah. I guess before we jump in and, and dive into all the these questions and just our conversation, um, I want to give you a second if you have any, you know, where can people find you? Um, I'm trying to move that to the front of the show so people can actually, you know, hear it if they don't know the episode. But where can people find you if there's social media, um, websites, anything like that? Yep, absolutely. So I have a website. It's TeresaEmerich.com, and it's where my course schedules live and, say, my biography and all those sort of background things on the other television programs I participated in besides alone, that kind of thing. Um, I also have an Instagram. It's uh, traditional underscore leather. And then on Facebook, I am Teresa Emmerich Camper. Easy peasy. Okay. Perfect. Well, we'll get all those links so people can can find you and and can go and, and just see what you're up to in all those spaces. Uh, you said you have a teaching schedule and it sounds like you're coming stateside. Is that all, when is that gonna happen? Like when are those classes and is that, what's up with that? So yeah, I am gonna come over to the States. This is the first time I've actually taught um, on the East Coast. And so I'll be teaching two deerskin tanning courses and one fur tanning course, potentially two fur tanning. Um, and that's going to be the, let me just look at my schedule quickly. It's the 8th through the 10th of April. I'll be in Gastonia, North Carolina at the Shield Museum teaching a deerskin tanning course. And then the following weekend, which is the 15th through the 17th of April, I'll be in outside of Asheville. And again, teaching deerskin tanning. We're talking brain tanning here. Yeah, so oldest tannage technology in the world. Pretty cool. You can do it with a few things you buy at the supermarket or everything that you pull out, out of an animal. <laughs> oh, super cool. Are those are those courses sold out? They are not. There's a few spaces in each, actually. And then there's a, there is a fox fur tanning, so hair on fur tanning course, the 23rd and 24th of April in Kentucky, outside of Lexington. Okay, awesome. Well, so this show is going to air, um, I think it ends up being April 1st, so actually this coming Friday. And uh, so if you're listening and you listen in the first couple of days of the podcast, there's definitely time to jump in on that still if you're in the area. Um, but that sounds like a great thing. So thank you for sharing that with us. And I guess we'll just jump in with, with kind of my, my fascination as I've been you know, kind of preparing and as we've learned somewhat about who you are. And I guess that is, is how does one become, how do you decide to get a PhD in, you know, prehistoric or you said stone age leather work? And I think my even, my bigger question is how does one find a PhD advisor qualified to advise you in that type of a PhD? And how does one find a group of PhDs who are qualified to determine if your dissertation was um, quality enough. That just seems like a very niche space. Those are some, actually some really good questions. I'm not sure I've ever been asked that question before. There um, you go. Yeah, you kind of <laughs> nailed that on the head, actually. It is such a niche field. So I started, I started tanning when I was 11, and I've been tanning since then. Um, so when I, I, 
I worked for the Smithsonian for a little while uh, as basically as an intern in the anthropology department. And that's where I was told about the experimental archaeology program over at the University of Exeter in the UK. And um, this gentleman said, basically, this program is handmade for you. you. You should really go check it out. So I did. I crossed the pond and I did an MA in experimental archaeology. And about halfway through the year, I basically had my fill of reading articles about tanning in the archaeological sense that made it quite obvious that the people writing them had never done this. I didn't necessarily have the best grasp on the practicalities of this technology type. Um, and therefore, the things that they were extrapolating from this to the archaeological record were most likely incorrect. <laughs> and these were, just to be clear, so these were academics, right? Is that where yes. you're, okay. So these were academics that maybe hadn't done the, like the real world type of a, Absolutely. so for those, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, because you're obviously the, the doctor, doctor of archaeology. Um, but it seems like there's a few different fields in archaeology where maybe the, the education comes before like a practical experience and so there's seems like there's certain things um, I'm thinking of like construction techniques and other areas where there is that disconnect for those that are just you know it's interesting if you've never done a thing but you've learned about it you might think something's possible and write about it but you have no idea that it just makes no sense in the real world so right exactly cool. exactly so, uh, so it's one of the so when you take something like chemistry the actual practical application of chemistry and working in the lab and that kind of thing is very tightly and married to the theory as you go through your education. And within archaeology, that's not always the case, especially when people become technologist specialists or technology specialists. Um, but that being said, that it is getting more and more common for archaeologists to really delve into the practicalities of their specialism as well. And experimental archaeology is just that. It's just a tool in your toolbox. It's not like most people are not just an experimental archaeologist. We're an archaeologist first that incorporate experimental archaeology into the way that we interpret um, the facts that are dug up by ourselves or someone else. Um, so to make sure that I'm understanding, um, and we're, we're going to get to all, the, all this leather stuff, but there's just... You know, that's what's fun about this is you start, yeah. we start going down one, one trail and there's so many hole. different yeah. things. Yeah, no, it's so fun. Um, so just make sure I'm understanding. And, and for those that are listening, make sure that, that hopefully we're all on the same page. So I'm going to take a stab and, and you can tell me how wrong I am. So as an experimental archaeologist, what I'm envisioning is, you know, someone finds a site, they find an artifact, they find a whatever, and they say, gee whiz, what the heck is this? And I mean, I'm assuming that you're using practical application recreation to try and rather than at a desk writing about it to actually recreate that thing or recreate that purpose or recreate that product. Is that fair? Yes, that's that's pretty accurate. So I would take um, an artifact that's been found and someone says, we think it was used for this. There's always someone who has a theory and this is just, it's the scientific method. You're testing out a theory. So the hypothesis is put forward. I have this question. I think this thing was used for this. Okay, so how do we disprove that? Because that's all you do with science. You disprove, you don't prove. So we take that theory, we remake the artifact, and we use it 
for the intended purpose, that, that theoretical purpose. And then you go back and you compare breakage patterns, use wear striations, so the scratches and things that the, this particular medium gets from use. And you compare that to the archaeological original and you say, does it match? And if the answer is yes, then you've supported your hypothesis. If it doesn't, you get to chuck the hypothesis out and start over. <laughs> That's really all experimental archaeology is. It's just applying scientific method to artifacts. Hmm. That is fascinating. So you basically get to play with artifacts and recreated artifacts for a living. Absolutely. Within a rigid right. framework. <laughs> <laughs> lots and lots of notes and recording. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, so we've got the experimental archaeology thing. And so you were you were working and you were reading papers in your education and it was like, there needs to be some more experimental archaeology applied to the field of leather, of prehistoric leather work. Yep. It was, it was really interesting to read articles that would call everything in a site rawhide because it wasn't vegetable tanned. And within the letter of, of the terminology, um, bark tanning is what we call leather. You know, the word leather isn't traditionally applied to anything except tanned skin. Tanned skin being vegetable tanned because tannins are the compound that actually produces that type of leather. It's where all this terminology goes back to. But practically speaking, you can't keep calling every other kind of processed skin product on the planet pseudo leather one it's slightly derogatory and two it doesn't really reflect its usefulness and it doesn't give any good information about what we're talking about so you can't you can't lump your alum tars your oil tans and your um semi-processed rawhides all and just lump it all in together under rawhide you know it gives you an idea that cavemen cavemen i love that term as well so prehistoric peoples were running around wearing clothing made out of rawhide which you know one it would rot off your body fairly quickly and it would have the fit and feel of a cardboard box so not the ideal clothing for basically trundling around the entire world yeah you just taught me so much in that like one minute my brain is like <laughs> <laughs> you have no idea but i i just learned more about leather and rawhide than I ever knew. So well, <laughs> well, I have a whole book on it. You can read until your, your, your brain explodes or you go to sleep, which will probably be the latter first. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I have learned that I can't read my like archaeology and like history type stuff. I love reading about all of this, <laughs> but I can't read those things when I'm in bed because it just, it's fascinating, but it just is long right out. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so you realize that there's this discrepancy and they were calling everything kind of by the wrong thing. Or so just, keep... yeah, just glossing over it. There was no, there was no detail. So it just, it didn't allow you to understand the nuances of this technology type. And there was a lot of that nuance there. It just wasn't easy to access because there wasn't a method for determining the, uh, tanning technology being used. So that's really what my PhD was, was me producing a, a very systematic methodology for differentiating between a number of prehistoric technology types that were used for tanning, those types being rawhide, your oil or fat tans, vegetable tan, and then 
kind of alum tall. It doesn't come along until quite a lot later, but I'm all. sure that I'm the only one of a few hundred people listening that is that doesn't know what alum tall is. So for <laughs> my know. so for for my benefit, not for all the other smart people, but for me, what what's alum tall? <laughs> okay, so alum tall is the only mineral tannage that was practiced prior to the industrial revolution. So 85 to 90 percent of your leather today is chrome tan. So it's done with chromium three. These are mineral salts. Alum is another mineral salt, except that it's aluminum bisulfite. Oh, I might have to check that word. <laughs> um, <laughs> Say it with your British accent and everyone's going to agree with it. And they just be nod and smile, nod and smile, right? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. You must know what she's talking about. No, but yeah. So anyway, this is this is a a tannage technology that probably doesn't pop up until probably the very early medieval, most likely in Europe and Northern Europe. But we do have some evidence for it um, going back to earlier time periods in the Near East and Northern Africa and some of these areas. It's definitely mentioned in Roman writing as well. Hmm. There's been okay. some yeah misinterpretations of the word between the latin and the modern stuff so yeah a lot of it is always just a little bit open to interpretation as much of archaeology is <laughs> man i can tell that i'm gonna have to be very careful with how i um direct and navigate this conversation because i could probably spend an entire time just in this one little <laughs> section um so was there anyone was there I mean, it sounds like a lot of a lot of the professional and and the writing that was happening wasn't in your current sphere. Were there other people that were doing what you are doing elsewhere in the world, and it was just a small group of people? Or I mean, I don't want to I don't want to you know cast a slight on anyone else, but were you kind of the first doing this, or how did that work out? I'm probably the first one that really focused on prehistoric. I shouldn't say that. I'm the first one that I'm aware of that focused pretty exclusively on prehistoric um, leather types. Um, obviously, I am American in the sense that the only language that I really read and speak well is English. So there could certainly be articles from countries where I'm unable to access that literature uh, that I'm not just not aware of. But yeah, there was a, a lady who specializes in Roman leather named Carol von Driel Murray, and she worked out of the university in Leiden in the Netherlands. There's a few other folks spotted here and there. Uh, one that pops to mind is Esther Cameron, who's done some work with metal preserved. So leather that's been preserved by being in contact with metal that has then oxidized and the oxidation preserves the... Intentionally or unintentionally? unintentionally usually okay. it'll be say the sheath on a sword or yeah. yeah yeah i was like that seems very odd okay yes no no it's just just a product of, of the degradation of those artifacts it yeah. just happened to be that they were in contact when they were deposited in the archaeological record so yeah so when you went to the university of exeter right mm -hmm. and you said hi <laughs> my name is Teresa emmerich camper <laughs> i want to be dr Teresa emmerich camper and I'm going to focus on prehistoric tanning, leather mm -hmm. preservation. Like, how did that conversation go? The conversation went like this. It was, I found this niche in the archaeological record, and it's in the, and the interpretation of leather there, and it drives me absolutely bonkers, and I want to try and fix this. I want to try and help 
this little tiny part of archaeology better understand this technology in the past. And there was a lovely lady, Professor Linda Herkum, who is one of the instructors for the experimental archaeology program here in Exeter. She's one of the original people who designed it. And she was not present the year that I did my MA. Um, she was out on sabbatical. But when I finished the MA and at the end of that summer, um, I put forward my proposal. It was sent to her. We met up for 15 minutes and she came in the room thinking, who's this crazy person who thinks she can do what this crazy thing that she said that she can do. I think that I can microscopically differentiate between different tannage technologies in all these different preservation environments from four to 8,000 years ago. And we sat down, we had a conversation. And at the end of it, she said, yeah, all right. I'm, I'm happy to back you. I'm happy to, to try this out. Let's see how it goes. That's cool. I mean, at the end of the day, it becomes a huge thing for the University of Exeter, right? I mean, they're, they, if they can be the university that puts out this kind of a, a one of a kind or a first of a kind or a, a very niche thing, then it, you know, makes them the hub of that same, you know, academia in the future. So that's kind of a cool thing for them. It makes sense that they would jump on board. So how, when you, when you made your proposal to your advisor, had you done any of this work? Had you started playing with it? And when you pitched it, you knew it was going to work? Or was there a part of you that was like, man, my whole PhD might get scientific method and just punched out? Yep, absolutely. Nope. There was a whole big chance of that happening. I mean, I'd been tanning for so long. I knew that there's a whole host of um, differences in the material, really differences in the materiality, its behavioral characteristics. Um, how it moves, how it preserves, all these different things with the different uh, technology types, whether that could be um, put into a really systematic setup where you could say, if it comes from this preservation environment and it has characteristics A, B, C, and D, that means it is vegetable tan. Or if it has characteristics B, E, and F, then probably it's rawhide something like that to have it be that simple where it's a tick the boxes and you come up with your your answer you know that's what i was hoping for but that's not exactly what i got and <laughs> well I, I mean i've got a million questions like well i've seen that you've done work in nordic areas and work in israel and i'm sure that that is a huge complicating factor um, but how long into your work when, did you have your first aha? You're like, okay, this might actually, like, I might be able to empirically do this. It was really, it was within the first six months. Okay. I, I figured it would be pretty quick. Kind of has to be. I mean, you really have to, they don't let you go on forever. I'm a self-funded PhD student. So you have a lot of leeway when you're paying for it yourself. You can do kind of what you want and they don't, they don't give you too much um, oversight, but there still is oversight. You know, you need to produce something that another person can look at and say, yeah, all right, you're making headway. And within about the first six months, I was able to demonstrate that, yes, there are um, visible differences that can be quantified or qualified between these different technology types. And, and is this like, 
I'm so sorry for everything. This is this is like so really nerdy. I'm so um, sorry. Well. No, this is great. I I I had no idea that um that this was gonna turn into a whole conversation about leather tanning PhD. Um. So are you using like, and I'm gonna use all the wrong words here, but are you using like electron microscope? Are you using something that's going to be looking at chemical compounds? Or is it a combination of everything? I mean, what's, how are you determining that something was, you know, tanned with an animal-based organic versus with a plant or whatever? Okay, so actually all of mine is visual. So it's only uh, stereoscopic microscopy. So it's just standard sort of 80 times magnification. Um, Interesting. Look, yeah. The problem, the problem that I ran into was, so we can get into scanning electron microscopy. We can get into things like proteomics for looking at the species. We can get into uh, mass spectrometry for looking at the actual compounds within the leather. But all of those things involve you to sample. So destructively sample mm -hmm. an artifact. What I was looking to produce was a methodology that didn't damage the artifact and that I could travel with to those sets of artifacts as opposed to having to have those artifacts sent to me. I can travel with just a standard, my standard stereoscopic microscope and my Dynalite and I can do some pretty in-depth and intense investigation of those artifacts with just that minimal amount of, of equipment. Was, was that your was that your hope like when you sat down and you wrote your own paragraph of this is what i want to accomplish was was that your plan a and then kind of your plan b plan c was something much more technologically advanced i mean i hate that sounds like i'm like you know making fun of what you're doing but was was your plan a like all right i just want to take a, a semi-regular microscope and be able to do this in field Yep. hoping that you didn't have to to take it further yeah i mean absolutely that was my plan a i wanted something that was compact and usable in a wide variety of circumstances now obviously when questions do come up that you can't answer with just that visual inspection then you can start talking about things like micro sampling for species identification or to look at possibly lipid contents or something along those lines so from different types of fats um but for the most part, you can get what you need just using the visual method um, with only, you know, a small need maybe for expanding it using the higher science end of the, the spectrum. Yeah. Was in the greater community, maybe not in your direct sphere, um, how were your methods received? Was there a lot of skepticism based on the type of technology you were using? I mean, were, were people receptive or did they say, nah, there's no way this is, she's gotta be a hack? Actually, no, everybody was really excited about it. People cool. were really ready and willing to just let you give it a try because you're not gonna hurt anything. You're not damaging anything. And very, very little archeological leather has been well analyzed simply because most archeological leather is ugly. You know, the really beautiful examples that I've looked at of, you know, Scythian leather that's coming out of um, you know, the Pazrek burials, um, the things from Qumran in Israel, um, bog burials, bog bodies from uh, Scandinavia. These are the exceptions 
to the rule when it comes to leather for the most part. They're the, they're the beautiful things that you see in the museum. What you don't see are all the things that look like burnt toenails and little chunks of the hard pieces of almost wood that are in the museum basement that you go hunting around and you're like, oh, that's leather. Oh, and that is as well. And oh, this is processed skin. And people looking at it going, yeah, I guess it does say that from 1820, whenever it was pulled out of the ground. But and a lot of that hasn't ever been analyzed. And it has just as much information to give as a collective data set as the really pretty stuff that you see at the front of the museum in a glass case. Huh, that was my goal, was to put all that, that information together to give you a more coherent understanding of the development of leather technologies through time or, you know, geographically. Gotcha. The, the bad joke I was going to make was how on earth do you differentiate like Otzi's leather from his skin? Because I've seen pictures of those bog barrels and it <laughs> seems like the whole thing is just leather at that point. Um, well, that's actually yeah. funny that you mentioned that because one of the uh, one of the difficulties with bog leather to begin with is the fact that for a long time it's been assumed that it's secondarily tanned. So tanned bog by where by it the, was deposited. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Peat bogs actually have tannin in them, and they. Uh, when anything that is collagen-based, protein-based, comes in contact with tannins, tannin does bond with collagen. That's what happens. But all of the behavioral characteristics, such as the shape of the holes, the edges, the way that the, that the leather looks in cross-section, things like this, are all set in place during the artifact's use life, not after it's deposited. So even though the color and perhaps the density might change a little bit, and chemically speaking, it's probably going to show up as vegetable tan after being in a bog, behaviorally and visual identification characteristics say that that's not always the case. In fact, quite a lot of what I've looked at out of those bogs has actually been fat and originally. And you're determining all of this. I mean, I'm going to think I'm going to use what you said. You're determining all of that from an 80 power microscope and yep. a lot of brain power. <laughs> do you, yeah, do you have any protégés that are coming up? Are you, are you teaching? Like, I, I think you teach obviously, but are you, is there like a experimental tan? Like, are you teaching the <laughs> next, I don't even know how to say it. Is there someone else who you're teaching that's going to be doing the same thing that you do? I don't, or I don't are there have, already those people? Have an, I don't have an apprentice of any sort like that. No, uh, I do do courses for museums. Normally, it's for conservators. Like I did one for the Quai Branly in Paris this past, not this past, yes, twenty twenty one in the spring, um, and we went for four days where a, a group of conservators not only learned all the identification characteristics of the skins and how to look at them under the microscope, but we went through all four tannage technologies as well. So each morning we deal with the hands-on and the scientific PowerPoints and looking through the sample collections and identifying characteristics. And then each afternoon they did one of the four tannage technologies. So we did rawhide, we did uh, fat tan, we did vegetable tan. We discussed alum tar and then we did a combination tan as well and so hmm. at the end of the week they had done all of these things just to get a much better understanding of this material type that they look at and work with on a daily basis <laughs> i'm i, I just think i'm like man if there is i think this is a great opportunity for someone that if you're listening because like 
<laughs> this is fascinating, right? And to to think that, um, I mean, it's, so it's still just you. That is that's wild to me. That is that that's just that's fascinating. Was there any that's moment? Exactly what the book is about, though. I mean, that was why I put my book out. Was because that's exactly what it is. It's a it's a guide to how to do this. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's so interesting. Um, so was there any ever moment or were there moments in your education where you kind of started wondering, cause for those that, that, you know, I can see Teresa and she's really excited about this stuff. Were there ever moments in your education and other things where you started wondering like, am I going to be able to be excited about bits of leather for the next 40 years of my life? Or was no, it just all in? It's all in. It's all in. I mean, the only thing that gets me more excited about life than leather is actually going out and, you know, going survival living. That's been my love since I was a child. And those are my two things that, yeah, sort of are my passions. So. Okay. Well, that's cool. Thank you for for sharing all of that. I think the leather stuff is, is absolutely fascinating. I wasn't, I was excited for that aspect of the conversation, but I, I wasn't expecting to have so many questions just like running through. I mean, I could stay in this space forever and, and, you know, probably lose most of my listenership. I don't know. I think it's fascinating. I hope that other people <laughs> think it's fascinating as well. Um, so you, you've mentioned, I think twice now you, so you started tanning when you were 11. Yep. You just mentioned that you started doing kind of the survival thing when you were a young child. Um, so you grew up in the States. So I did, yeah. kind of, where did you grow up and what was your background and, and how did that get fostered in you at such a young age and and go from there oh boy um well i grew up in lander wyoming so um not a heavily populated area of the world we'll put it that way so my dad worked for the game and fish actually and you know he used to take us backpacking and hiking and fishing and hunting and all those things that you do when you live in wyoming and the taking it to the stone age end of things, wanting to always do things with just, just what I could find around me. Not really quite sure where that came from, to be perfectly honest, um, but my parents were brilliant about encouraging it. Yeah. When it came to the leather, uh, Lander has a, a fairly substantial Native American population. I had quite a few friends who did powwowing, and honestly, I just loved the leather dresses. I just wanted a pretty leather dress. It was no deeper than that. This was not some child thinking that I'm going to learn the ways of the ancestors. Heck no, I just wanted a pretty leather dress. And I was aware that people used to tan leather at home. So I thought, I'll just do that. Right. Because <laughs> it's going to be that easy, right? Uh, yeah, it took so me Dad, about... can you bring some roadkill home and... Mm -hmm. Well, he'd, you know, he'd hunt every fall. So there was always a deer skin around and he put up with me oh a couple of years there with me taking not only his deer skins but some of his friends and working with them um i was not actually successful with my tanning until i was about 13. it took me about two and a half years to bumble my way through to what i now know to be essentially dry scrape brain tanning so, were you going to like the library were you talking to people like how 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 did you discover this your is, techniques? This was pre-internet, of course, so it's not like you just looked it up on Google. Um, I did try that later when the internet did come along, actually. But putting skin.com into Google when you're 15 is not recommended. 
that happened. Yeah. Um, I would go to library. I found one very small article from, I think it was Woodsmoke from absolutely ages ago. And I, I think it may have been Jim Riggs who wrote this article. And that's the first actual written account I had run into of tanning. Uh, and I was, I think I was about 14 at that point. And at that point I had already produced two skins that were, mm, we're going to call them usable. Good would be a large stretch of uh, the vocabulary there. No, uh, but yeah. So reading that one, and then I got my hands on Blue Mountain Buckskin, which was another one by Jim Riggs, and it kind of consolidated how I was doing dry scrape brain tanning. Um, and then when I was, let's see, I was 17 or 18. I was 18 the first time I made my way to Winter Count, which is a primitive skills gathering in in um, Arizona. And that's the first time I saw wet scrape brain tanning, uh, which is the one that's done on a beam. All the processes are done wet. You don't actually dry the skin out at any point unless you choose to, to preserve it for a while. Um, and yeah, those were, that was my introduction to a new type of tanning. And I kind of ran with that. It wasn't too long after that, that I actually moved out to the woods in Southwestern Colorado. And yeah, spent quite a lot of time tanning there. So what was, what was that point of your life moving out to the woods in Colorado? sounds like there's some stories there. <laughs> um, yeah, I, well, it's the beginning of all stories, right? So I met a guy and then I moved to the woods with this gentleman and spent a long time, about five years living in Southwestern Colorado outside of Pagosa Springs, um, building a cabin and practicing skills and still owned a vehicle, still went to town to work. It's not like I, I ran off and became a hermit or anything crazy, but it was a really nice place with um, a lovely family who were very supportive again of all, all the skills stuff and um, a partner for that five years who also did these things and would practice them with you. So yeah, it was a, it was a wonderful experience. Lived with no running water or electricity for almost five years. Man, yeah. that's <laughs> and I mean you don't have to pinpoint the the time frame, but roughly what year was this? Um, it was right after I left high school. Actually, I did one year of university. Had no interest really in being in university. The only reason I ended up in university is because uh, I didn't get all my stuff together quite in time to do this crazy canoe trip that I had planned out of high school, where I was gonna uh, yeah, I was gonna canoe across the United States and survival live the whole way. And yeah, I made it to Montana. We'll put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that an adventure that's still, I mean, has that been done? And is that an adventure that's still on the books? Like, was this like a, like a Lewis and Clark recreation or? It was what? actually, I really wanted at the time I wanted to go to the Tom Brown school for survival living out on the East coast in New Jersey. Those were those want books. to get there in the most bad a way possible. Is that basically, I don't even think I thought <laughs> of it that way. My mom did point out later. She's like, you know, if you made it there, I'm not necessarily sure you'd have needed to go through the school, but you know, it was, <laughs> it's those things as, you know, wonderful big dreams that you have when you're that age. You know, I've never been somebody who really, you know, I guess dreams small shoot for the moon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause if you shoot for the, what's the phrase you shoot for the moon and you, you know, you're going to still land somewhere, right. Even if you don't, don't hit the moon. Absolutely. absolutely. So, yeah. So anyway, yeah. I, um, when I came back from that little adventure, 
it didn't last all that long. I think I was out for six days. It wasn't a long time, but I was, you know, what I ran into, the problem I ran into is once I hit Montana, there was no real riparian zone anymore. They can farm almost right down to the river edge and caught a cat in one of my snares. Probably wasn't even legally supposed to be snaring, but when you're 18, you have no idea. 19, whatever I was. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. The, I'm sure that the statute of limitations on all of that is very well run out. So, Indeed. So we're Indeed. good. Yeah. <laughs> So was so it sounds like kind of food and 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 that was the limiting factor on food on is that the journey. limit yeah food is always the limiting factor it seems like it's one of those things I think everybody who goes out you know primitive living survival living living off the land for any long amount of time a lengthy amount of time realizes that the majority of the places that have the resource availability for you to live for long periods of time in a hunter gatherer style are already occupied by people. All the places where there are no people, there are no people there because there are no resources there. So there's only a very, very small pockets of places in the world where you can actually go and do those things and do it very successfully to really thrive in the wild as opposed to just practicing your true survival skills. You know, those first three or four days when you're out, yeah, after the first four or five times you do it, those that part's not really that much fun anymore. You're like, okay, I just got to get through this for those first three, four, five days where you're really getting yourself set up. And then after that, once you've got your basics met, that's when it actually gets fun. Yeah. It's interesting. Remember when I was talking to Keith, um, one of the things that he said was that he was not expecting, I mean, he was aware, but he wasn't expecting food to be as limiting as it was. And so I was just asking, I was like, so like, what did you, like, what did you learn? What did you take away from that whole experience on alone specifically? And he's like, man, just food, <laughs> food, 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 is, is kind of the, the thing. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and it's, it seems obvious, but and he has, I think that's what he said is like, it seems obvious, but anything you can think of how important food is going to be, you are grossly underestimating how important it's going to be and how challenging it's going to be, even if you have all the skills. Yep, absolutely. And I think one of those things that people don't necessarily, who just watch alone on TV, are maybe aren't super aware of is that we have rules. You know, we have to play within all of the wildlife rules that exist for those areas. And each season has a different set of rules. And um, for my season, um, the animal-based rules were fairly restrictive and that's me being a little bit british on that they were really restrictive um and it meant that you had to get really creative with your food because there was food there you know i had a i had a moose that would walk around and i could just you know wave at gertrude in the morning and yeah i couldn't <laughs> eat her <laughs> couldn't eat the squirrels you have squirrels all over you but that was just those were the rules for that area and everybody had the same rules and everybody was playing the same game so it is what it is, but it did mean yeah. you have to get very, very creative with your your use of calories, where you could get them from. How could you extract the most caloric content you could from what resources you did have or were able to use? Yeah. So that's interesting. Um, did you find that that creativity and the challenge, did that drive 
risk taking in your mind when you were trying to creatively acquire creative food sources or was did that not really was that a thing um yeah there were definitely some risks uh (laughs) taken for sure when it came to collecting calories but aside from the obvious one that made the camera real um which by the way hands down (laughs) the most terrifying moment of the entire show i don't know you can correct me if i'm wrong and this is exactly what i was i was trying to creatively kind of you know back into um when i watch that i mean sure certainly it's presented in in a very specific way i get the sense that that was about 10,000% more dire than it even appeared on tv you can crush my dreams if you want to um and i know that thinking what you're seeing that's just there's folly involved there when it comes to the show mm-hmm. just because of the nature of it but to me that whole thing seemed i looked at michelle and i was like i'm pretty sure that that's about as close as someone's ever come to not making it off the show uh yeah yeah so i really wish that that had had a little bit more context given to it as in the fact that there was a whole lot of pre-work done to before i just had a, a jolly that morning and decided to jump into some cold water for an excessive amount of time that's a little bit what it made it seem like uh it was not it was very well planned and prepared for for what uh, it's worth and- it seemed it seemed thought out to me like it it, it seemed oh, like there was a plan and uh, what is it no no plan survives first contact with the enemy type of a thing so it absolutely it in this case the enemy is a life vest but that's okay <laughs> Um, yeah. So just so you know, from my perspective, that did not at all seem like a harebrained, let's just go do a thing. And it did seem very well thought out for those that are, are confused. Go watch. I don't even know what episode is, but, uh, essentially maybe yeah, six. somewhere in there. Essentially, if, if you haven't seen it or you're not remembering what happened, I don't know how you couldn't, um, Teresa basically had to not drown and not get hypothermia all at the same time. Um, it was, it was pretty scary. Anyways, continue. Yeah, no, no, it was, yeah, that was, uh, I guess it's one of those things where when you actually go through it, I look back and I think, oh yeah, I know that that was, um, they don't show the first 20 minutes of me coming out of the water for a reason, because I didn't think it probably belonged on television. Um, but when you're actually experiencing it, there's, I wasn't scared. There isn't time to be scared. You can't. You have to just do the things because if you don't do the things in the right order, then you die. When, so when you say didn't belong on television, I've, I've got to stop. Was it because it would have just been a string of bleeps? Was it because of the clothing or lack thereof you had on at the moment? Or was it because it was like, and I'm going to break my own rule. It was it like, holy shit, this is real. I think it probably would have been a bit more of the latter. It would have been a pretty rough. That's what I I remember spending a a long time chanting, if you, if you fuck up, you're going to die. You have to do everything in the right order or you're going to die. And that was, yeah, it was intense, but you don't have an option. Your option is you die. So it's not an option. (laughs) You just get on with it. Did you have Um, your... I don't even know what you guys use your the yellow brick like your EPIRB or your sat fund. Were yep. you were you able to 
to operate those devices and hit an SOS? Or were you like so yes. out of it that you couldn't even get that? I mean, it was just focus on one little thing. You could have. Yep. Yeah, I could have still. I mean, if you can walk, you can push a bloody red button. You know, it's a big button. Yeah. And it has a little cover on it. You have to take it off. But other than that, yeah, you can't not. I don't. You'd have to have chopped your arm off to not be able to push the red button. The yeah. safety on this program is superb. Yeah. There is nothing bad to be said about the safety protocols for this program. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I mean, the fact yeah. that it's been allowed to be on TV for as long as it has means that they are definitely doing something right in that regard. Exactly. I never felt like at any time that, other than getting eaten by a bear, if you got eaten by bears, not much they can really do about that. That's yeah. just life, you know? What was I have it. Oh. What was their time to your site? Like, what would it, how much time would it have taken for them to go from base camp to Teresa's campfire on the beach? Probably a half an hour to 45 minutes. So, I mean, really, the button, it didn't even matter, I'm guessing, right? It wasn't the best option at the time. Yeah. Yep. The best option was to not die. Are so, you okay talking yeah. about this, by the way? Because, I mean, I'm sure this is a, a thing that is extremely traumatic. Are you fine being in this space with this conversation? I'm absolutely fine okay, with it, yeah. Cool. yeah. We get psychologists talk to us afterward as well. And to explain how untraumatic this was to me, it really wasn't a traumatic experience. It really wasn't because you just did the thing, uh -huh. you got wow. warm, you didn't die, and everything's fine. I didn't even remember to mention it to the psychologist until the second episode, and then it was right at the end. It's like, was there anything else that you would, you know, like to go over that had happened while you were out there? And I remember going, oh, yeah, I almost died on a beach. Yeah. And I was like, well, you want to come back to that? No, I'm all right good interesting but, was it when you watched it happen was there did anything come back that you that that wasn't there before i.e when you when you saw it and you you know obviously know the stuff that wasn't there mm -hmm. did anything else come up and you were like you know what maybe we can have that conversation or have you stayed pretty pretty level with the whole I've been pretty level with it yeah absolutely I've, it's not really been an issue at all nothing nothing that happened out there was really an issue um because you know what everything you do out there is completely under your control you choose what when where and how what's less fun is the after parts you know when the thing comes out on television and then you have the entire world giving their opinion on all of your things that you've done and then suddenly you know you've put all of this out there to the world and then you don't have any control over any of that any longer you just kind of have to sit back and ride the roller coaster of public opinion and i mean at the end of the day i don't know these people they don't know me their opinion is not particular it doesn't actually have much actual effect on my life therefore yeah. you can kind of look at it from an outside perspective and just say all right that's cool. You can think what you like. It's not a problem. Did it take you time to get there um, mentally? Or maybe did being in academia for so long prior to the show prep you for that? Um, yeah, I think I think being part of a um, critical thinking sort of community where people do on a pretty frequent basis say I disagree with this you know and and you know you debate back and forth and that's part of your discourse on a on a you know somewhat daily basis 
does mean that you're more open to understanding that people have different viewpoints on things and that that's okay. It's not the end of the world that not everybody agrees with how you do things. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah, I don't agree with how everybody else does things, but it doesn't mean that I expect them to change. It's just that is the way it is and people are different. Life goes on. The only thing that got onto my skin a little bit was some of the was some of the accent stuff. I, it was just so unexpected yeah. to have people be so hypercritical of the fact that I've ended up with a hybrid accent after living in another country for 13 years. Yeah. And people say, yeah, I have American friends that went abroad and they never lost their accent. It's like, well, you know, I've lived here with people with different accents for a very long time. And I don't have American friends here. I don't hear American accents, except on television. I go watch The Big Bang Theory. Sure, I hear an American accent, but that's it. Yeah. I travel between 12 different countries most years. I'm really only at home for about four months of the year at this point. So I'm surrounded by lots and lots of accents. It's kind of unsurprising that mine's a mess. And yeah. it's not like it's British. It's not like it's American. It's just a mess. <laughs> um. You know, it reminds me of, and it's completely different, but it reminds me of, I spent a lot of time in homes where they were uh, teaching their children two different languages so they could have English and Spanish as a first language and be, mm -hmm. you know, first language proficient in all mechanics of both languages at the same time. And it was funny to be talking to these kids and like the, the poor kids, I'm talking like, you know, six, seven, eight year old children, maybe even a little bit younger, you know, three, four, five, six year old children. And the poor things would be talking and then would just like flip and they just wouldn't know. Right. And so you're having this conversation <laughs> with this child and you're literally for me as a non-native speaker, as a non-first language proficiency speaker in Spanish, it was too much of a workout. It's like, whoa, English, Spanish, English, Spanish, English, Spanish. <laughs> mm -hmm. All just right there. Just a complete mess as if it were one language, right. Without thinking. Um, and so I can, I mean, it's not it's not the same concept, but kind of the same general idea with your accent, right? It just becomes what it is, and yep. it's you know it's who you are. Yep, and you know it morphs as well. It's one of those. I don't know. I guess one of the responses I had when people would message me about the accent is, you know, I just explain this is where I've lived, this is what I do, blah blah blah, and then I would just send them literature on the adult acquisition of accents because it seemed like a much easier way forward to let someone else who is actually a specialist in that type of, of would you would you research. slip the did you slip the article titled um and you you said that way more eloquently adult accent acquisition <laughs> colon empathy <laughs> did you did uh, you yeah, yeah. did you put the empath papers on top to kind of be like look all right why are you being such a jack because yeah. i mean that's a, i think that's a i've, I've heard I, i've read i think that the empathy at least in in some versions of it plays a role or at least some researchers believe that that the ability to attain an adult onset or adult acquired um <laughs> i love that adult yeah, onset like it's done adult <laughs> adult onset um accent th there's like a level of empathy involved th there's something there with with how easily people acquire it. i could be wrong uh i you've, you've i haven't, I haven't run into that one most 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 of what i've read is to do with um not staying an outsider in a group for longer than you have to it's an evolutionary mm -hmm. thing because you know other is not 
a good thing. Not a safe place to be. It's not a safe place to be. You're going to get eaten first. Yeah? When shit hits the fan. (laughs) So one of our evolutionary strategies is to adopt uh, mannerisms of the group around you so that you fit in. And it's, it's not conscious. It just happens. You live here for more than a few years, you're going to end up saying things like, go put the rubbish in the bin instead of put the trash in the trash can. Yeah. And it's not the accent you get first. It's actually it's actually the terminology you pick up. It starts being really funny. I'm going to go use the loo. And everyone's like, what's, you know, come back to the US, what's the loo? I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. It's a bathroom, bathroom. But the other thing they say is toilet. And you can't come back and say that in the US. I'll go use the toilet. I'm like, well, that's a bit crass. Maybe yeah. we'll just that one, right? <laughs> that's funny. I, I, there's all, I, I was going to make a, an England joke. It's like, isn't that the whole thing, right? We all, the Americans think that, that English is pretty brute compared to what we are over here. Yeah. I always well, I think the old joke is, you know, it's two countries separated by a common language. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, well, thanks for, for sharing that story about about your experience in the water. I wanted to get there somehow, um, and you, you teed that up perfectly. And so I'm glad you shared that because it was, I mean, it was much more even than I thought. I, I thought that on the TV show, I was like, wow, that was, you know, that was pretty darn scary. And, and I think that they, I mean, obviously now we know that they watered that down quite a bit. Um but even what they showed is like, well, that they that watered it dumb. down. They just, they just, well, yeah, they kept, they I mean, kept say, it watched. I'm not saying that yeah. in a bad way. I'm, I'm not saying that in a bad way at all. I'm not, I'm not like being critical. Um, just, you know, it was, it was every bit of what it was. <clears throat> it was, it was an intense experience. And I think I said it on camera, you know, the best way to feel alive is to almost die. Right. <laughs> Um, so we, we also, we were just talking about the, the criticism and, and obviously with the accent thing, cause that's what a lot of people like to pick on you for. Um, but in academia, have you ever, have you ever had to retract a paper, part of a paper or an opinion? I mean, it doesn't sound like there's anyone out there really trying to disprove you. Um, but have you, yeah, I'm in a really niche field, yeah, so it's, it's not like that I necessarily run into a lot. Yeah, but, um, I, that's what I was thinking. Like, I, I can't imagine that if it has happened that there's much because, or I mean, maybe the circumstances of a site changed and you know, maybe that caused something. I don't that, know. That kind of stuff happens all the time. It actually hasn't happened to me personally yet. It will, yeah, it absolutely will. I mean, that's again, that's part of being a scientist. This isn't about belief, it's not a religion. You know, if the facts change, you have to change your viewpoint with them. Otherwise, you're not doing science anymore. You're just defending your opinion. Um, it's not about your opinion. This has nothing to do with you. Yeah. You know, it has to do with interpretation of a set of data. And it's that simple. If the data changes, the interpretation changes. Have... If you're not a big enough human being to be able to accept that and just do it, then you're not a very good scientist. Have you ever been obligated to confront someone else's work? I have not. Again, because I'm a technologist, I don't deal a lot with um, face-to-face sort of um, interactions with other academics. I do the analysis work, and then oftentimes I'm a co-author on things. So I come in with the analysis, I say, this is what the facts are. I'm not always the one interpreting them. 
people who are more familiar with the culture and the uh, time periods and all of that kind of thing um, are the ones who tend to actually be the lead author on that paper and they write the the parts that are all the context gotcha. that actually integrates the data that I produce. So you, I mean, you really have found the the perfect little space in the academic world where you get to do it. Like it you get to do a thing you love. <laughs> yep. That you absolutely enjoy. That you know, for basically the entirety of your life, you've had a passion for, which is super cool. Um, and that's something that Michelle and I have talked about before. Is we love regardless of what the subject is, we love interacting with and talking to and seeing people that are living their passion. Um, yep. Even if it's something that just does not at all, you know, pique your interest because it's just cool to see people living their passion. So one, you found something that is uh, very clearly your passion. Two, there's no one who can call you out <laughs> and, and, you know, heavily scrutinize your work. And three, you don't have to do the opposite. You don't have to really go to people and say, mm, you know, you've, you've ruined 30 years of, of taught history by what you said. Here. <laughs> no, gosh, I would, I would, I, I would not enjoy that. I don't necessarily enjoy confrontation. I would rather just let people have their opinions. It's just fine. I, I don't need the. You know, I don't need to be the person that jumps on Reddit and hops into every conversation. It's yeah. just not my my gig. I, I spend my time doing other fun things, like running around the world, teaching people to tan skins and flint nap and make leather and yeah, make leather clothing. That's super cool. <laughs> um, so what's the most out of place, maybe out of place isn't the right word. When I say out of place, I'm talking, you know, that's probably going to come down to like species or something like that. Um, and, and I don't know, it sounds like you probably don't delve much into that, but what's the most mm. like out of place or, and this is really putting you on the spot. So hopefully you go to bed every night thinking I'm <laughs> awesome and thinking about all the reasons, but what's the most out of place or the most unexpected, uh, result that you've ever come across that maybe made you do your work two or three more times just to confirm. Um, Two things, actually. Uh, so on the, the Fashioning the Viking Age project that I did with the National Museum of Denmark, I did some of the analysis on the two grave sites that were um, the basis for the reconstruction work. So I did the actual analysis of the leather items and then retanned them and replicated with our best idea of replication. But if these are fragmentary pieces, obviously, so... Um, perhaps reconstruction would be a better term than replicate as it's not an exact copy um, of these items. And one of the things that jumped out was the fact that the woman had on bark tan, vegetable tan shoes, but they're goat and they appear to have had the hair on them. So it's absolutely the first archeological example of a hair on vegetable tanned skin that I've seen. And then the other one and that be... wasn't controversial. I mean, I guess there's no one that would even know. No, it's not. I mean, I don't, nothing I do is very controversial in the sense that, just, you know, like, I say this usually... is, I think this is what it is. And then no one else has ever really looked at it that close. Yeah, so I think usually, I mean, <laughs> my brain has obviously been trained to understand, especially in the archaeology space, that if you're someone who's coming out and saying, this is a thing, this is the first of this thing, 
and you know usually that is that's like a hey this is a thing and this is you know it's the first time it's ever happened but i mean there's just that's just there's just no one who's gonna come and say you're wrong dr camper <laughs> i mean you have people ask you questions about it sure yeah, they're like I mean, do you, you have... really sure it is and i was like well yeah, I mean, look at how the follicle edges stand up. They half of them still have roots in them. This definitely was hair on. That I'm assuming kind of it was thing. hair to the inside of the shoe, right, as opposed to like a traction uh, no, on the, the outside. outside. It was on the outside. Yeah, it looked to be a something for look over the entirety I mean, of the of the of the object. Once you or get down it... to the soles, yeah. So the object is fragmentary, so mm -hmm. it's hard to gotcha. say for sure. What's what? Yeah. What's well, you know what pieces are what, but you don't actually have the whole thing. So making a comparison between the entirety, it's hard to say, yes, it was on the sole and wasn't on the upper or it was on the upper and not the sole. But from what I remember specifically, it was on the upper hmm. and I don't remember off the top of my head for the sole. These soles were not a separate piece anyway. It was a one piece shoe. Um, and then the other one was another shoe uh, and it was a bog find. So and that was from the Netherlands. And it was written down as having unusual pitting um, and poorly preserved, I think is what it said in the, the rather old report on it. And I started looking at it and it was actually pigskin. Pigskin basically isn't used. You just, you don't see it. You don't see it ever until quite late in time. Now we see it all the time because we split pigskin and then mostly it's chrome tamped. But pig is, number one, pigskin is eaten. It's full of fat. So calorically speaking, archaeologically, it was likely eaten just because lots of calories. You know, fat has nine calories per gram compared to four in protein or carbohydrates. So it's a much, much richer source of calories. So people eat it. Secondarily, it's really difficult to tan. It's greasy. It has a really tight dermal fiber structure through the whole thing. The bristles of of the pig they come in little threes look like brush strokes when you look at the grain pattern they go all the way through the full thickness of the material so they're really really distinctive i mean they heavily pit the leather yes absolutely <laughs> they do but because no one uses it the person who had looked at this previously probably rightly just did not assume that that could possibly be pig because nobody uses it but once i got a microscope on it and started looking as well it's a pig hmm. could be wild boar can't really differentiate between the two just yet. Hopefully with proteomics, we'll get that nailed down someday, but really, not for so now. There's, so you're at some point in the future, you'll be able to say, even at the beginning of, I mean, do you have any idea how far into domestication that would be? That'd be the Neolithic, I think. Or, oh, like how far no, into, I think that's like, do you know really how far into domestication you'll be able to say this was boar versus like what you just said pig. blew my mind. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't. You'd have to talk to someone who is a proteomics analyst to look at that. And currently, I'm not sure that we can look at the difference between domestic pig and wild boar. But, just because wild boar is the direct ancestor of domestic pigs. But at some point in the future, you're saying that there is, is work being done to do that. I think that the possibility is open for that. Yeah. I mean, they're getting that, that kind of technology is getting more and more sensitive. It's pretty fantastic actually and the amount of tiny sample size you need is phenomenal it's just done with an eraser hmm. you just rub on it collect the dust put it in a little packet and off it goes that's cool so the the pigskin was it i mean was it clearly on the 
I guess mummy's foot or was it like was there was there any room to say like at first to say is this two different things or was it very apparent that nope this is one site this is all related this was a, it was a singular shoe um there's people think you know that there's different theories about why these shoes are in the bogs as you know did someone just constantly lose one of their shoes so it was just or a shoe. Are there was not there was not a person with the shoe no no, okay. this isn't a body. This was just a, a a bog find as opposed to a bog body. Yeah. Gotcha. Interesting. And and to what? When was that dated to? Um, I'd have to double check. I'm pretty sure that one is uh, Bronze Age. Okay. Yeah, I think it was early. Bronze I'll have age. to Google that later. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> That's one thing. I, one thing. I. It's funny. I was going to ask you this a while ago. That's one thing that I I don't have in my brain because I don't do it. Is what the yep. different periods like you know, where the differentiator line is, or and probably not line, but the period, you know, that would mm-hmm. separate one era from another epic one, whatever you'd call it from another. Yeah. Well, it was actually kind of funny, actually, while I was in Israel this time, I had to laugh because it's an area that's been um, heavily populated for a very long period of time. It has very distinctive archaeological periods, that which all have names that are used all the time. Whereas I'm a prehistorian, I mostly work in years ago, yeah. So 4,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, whatever. So, you know, they say things like second temple period. And I'm going, I have no, no idea. idea yeah, I'm smiling and nodding and I'm going to get Google out in the next five minutes and <laughs> check that on the phone so that I don't look like a complete idiot. Is, yep. So is there a time frame that your work becomes less necessary? Like have you found that, and it's, and it's probably going to be region specific as well, I would assume, just based on yep. different advancement levels and stuff, but... Is there generally a time frame where what you do becomes less relevant or do you just choose to focus on old, old stuff? Well, the more recent in time you get, the more you get vegetable tan is the norm. Now, partly that's to do with the fact that it can be mass produced in a way that's difficult to do with fat and oil tans. Secondarily, it has to do with the fact that vegetable tan preserves in wet environments where your oil tannages and rawhide and even alum tar do not. They degrade, they rot, you don't get them. So it's called a preservation bias in archaeology, meaning it's not that this product didn't exist at this time, it's that we don't get it because it doesn't preserve, but this other one does. You know, it's called the Stone Age because that's what we get, our stones. However, 85 to 90 percent of the equipment that people would have been using at that time period were organic materials we don't have them because most of the time they don't preserve be like the equivalent of it'd be like trying to interpret the modern era if all we got to look at was ceramic plates (laughs) hey i don't know if i don't know if this is going to mean anything with how long you've been in the the uk but Corelware will be around forever. I can. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm aware of Corelware. That, that stuff, uh, it will be around and it will be intact forever. We will be known. <laughs> we will be known as a culture by our Corel. Corelware, actually, probably. I mean, get yeah, yeah. <laughs> linear band ceramic. You're gonna be Corelware. That's so interesting. <laughs> I mean, now <laughs> so many questions. Um, I'm just thinking like, how hard is it, it to fill in those blanks? I mean, it's all assumptions, 
but filling in those blanks where things no longer exist, but knowing that they had to exist or hypothesizing that they mm -hmm. should exist. Um, is that a pretty hard space to try and fill in? Absolutely. That's why, that's why finds like we see finds like um, the dry cave sites in the, the southwestern part of the United States, those places where you do get that organic preservation, where you get that, and I'm going to take this term off of Linda Hercombe, Professor Linda Hercombe, the missing majority hmm. of your, I like that. Of your uh, material culture, that those finds, those are really where you get that little window into it where then you can kind of hypothesize out of that. You can say that this area that had this set of resources and this sort of climate used this solution to this problem, perhaps we can extrapolate that to somewhere else that has a similar climate and a similar set of resources. We have to be really careful with those cultural parallels, though, um, if the environment is significantly different. I, that's going to be, and then it will, we'll start to, to slow down here. This is a question I actually had at the very beginning. And you've just walked perfectly into it. Um, how, I don't know how to, to, there's so many different ways to approach it. How often or how was it maybe in your PhD program or just in your professional work? How have you had to develop and I guess create different methods based on location? I, earlier we talked about, you know, like Nordic Scandinavian versus working in Israel. And I can only mm -hmm. imagine that that is that drastically changes what you're doing or is is it is, it is it being a thing that's the yeah that's the beauty of it has to be though it has to be a very set system you have to be able to compare directly one place to another place to be able to actually talk about that data as a group set so the only thing that differs significantly between the places is the type of preservation for the most part you still you still always have you know there's only really your four types of tanning technologies. There's your rawhides, there's your oil tans, there's your vegetable tans, and then there's your mineral tannages, which is the alum tar that we talked about earlier. Those are the only four we get. That's still the only four we have today. Nothing has really changed. You know, vegetable tan is not as old as the others, as uh, the oil tans and the rawhide. Those go back much, much, much further than vegetable tan does based on the current understanding of the archaeological record. Obviously, we could get something that comes out of Glacier tomorrow and just blows that theory right out of the water. But for now, that is as it is. But um, so really, the only difference, the major differences you have are trying to interpret the identification characteristics of those four technology types when they've been preserved in very different environments. So say in Israel, it's a very, very dry site. So things tend to be incredibly well-preserved. They tend to oxidize to some degree, um, just because that's what leather does over time. Um, whereas in Scandinavia, mostly you're getting um, either bog finds or you're getting some other kind of anaerobic wet site preservation where so there's no bacterial decay because there's no oxygen. So some of these grave mounds that get um, excavated, there is some level of organic preservation there because they're anaerobic. So even... So even looking at the same technique in two drastically different, you know, you're going to have a piece that's well-preserved and a piece that's not well-preserved. It's still same, same techniques and it's still readily. It's still doable. Yeah. How long does it take yes. you? Let's say you have a, a terribly preserved piece 
and then you have a, a well-preserved piece. How long is it going to take you? I mean, obviously, this is a terrible question to ask a scientist. I get it. I'm sorry, <laughs> um, but you have to answer it. How like how long do you think, on average, it would take you a, a well-preserved piece versus a non-well-preserved piece to make your determination? Uh, it would depend a little bit on the on the piece. Uh, if the poorly preserved piece still had some stitch holes or some original edges, things like so that, where I can look at behavioral the, characteristics, the, yeah. as well as just the dermal characteristics, uh, then it'll be a lot easier to interpret. To get, I can get more information out of it. See, this is why Whereas I said really this is a terrible question for a scientist. This is a question. I'm well preserved, this. not well preserved. You have good cross sections on both. Okay, uh, I would say that the well preserved one it'll be within five or 10 minutes that I can tell you most likely what it is. Uh, the poorly preserved one, uh, it might be something that I can never tell you because it might be that I need to go home, take four different types of tannage, tannages, stick them in a similar preservation environment and look at what happens in two years before I can come up and say, hey, yeah, all right. Now we have a direct comparison for this. So I actually have a basis on which to make my assumptions. Because if it's something I've not seen before, if it's a preservation environment that I don't have any experience with, it doesn't have classic characteristics, then I then have to produce a sample that emulates that before I can have a leg to stand on to talk about it. Otherwise, I'm just making up. I'm just theorizing. Yeah. 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 You are who you tried to correct. <laughs> yes, when exactly. I did. What, so what's your longest... What's your longest you wanna, you, time to make a determination? Two, three years? Mm. Is that kind of what you just... Um, or do you have like jars of things just sitting in swamp water? I have, I, have, I have jars of things all over the place, absolutely. I mean, yeah, every place I go, if somebody will give me little bits of leather as well, I have this, you know, evolving ginormous collection of samples that, you know, somebody has hung a, a vegetable tan skin. Sure, it's a commercial veg tan, but I don't care. They've hung it in a roundhouse roof in the wind hole, you know, the, the window, the wind hook at the top for the last 25 years. You know, that's a heck of a sample piece of leather. It's like, can I have a little chunk off of that? You know, you could look up the weather patterns for the last 25 years that go with that, if you so choose. You just... You just need to be able to lay the data next to the piece. And then you can say really interesting things. Yeah, <laughs> about, you know, is it on the north side? Is it on the south side? How much UV did it get as opposed to uh, sitting in the wet? That kind of thing. So, yeah. Hmm, that's super cool. Well, uh, Teresa or Dr. T, I guess we can, we'll end at Dr. <laughs> T. Um, Absolutely. Is there Go anything that anything you want to wrap up with? Any anything you want to mention to anyone listening, or any last words you want to get out? Anything you want to talk about that we didn't talk about? Anything that's anything at all? You know, I kind of did want to roll back around to you know how I said that we one of the real challenges on alone was trying to intensively use cal calories. Yeah. One of the things that uh, it didn't get shown on the film much, and I think it's a shame was the fact that a lot of the plant materials that I was, you know, they don't run away. <laughs> you know, the, the day that I found the dead fish on the beach, I had an entire raincoat's worth of roots that I'd also, I'd hung that fish in a tree for four hours while I collected all of these roots and took those home as well. 
and it just you know those kind of things don't make the edit but that's not really where i was going with that um one of the ways that i was that i was managing my caloric intake and making sure that i was getting as much caloric content available bioavailable caloric content out of those plant foods as was possible was things like um, memorizing the calorie content of each of the berry types and the root types um, so that I could, when I got out there, I could weigh my GoPro, which weighed 300 grams. So I sewed a bag for it. I sewed a bag for food and I had a broken arrow shaft and I could put the arrow shaft on a pivot, weigh my food and know how many grams of any food type I had. Therefore, I had the approximate caloric value that I needed to be putting in me so that I wasn't losing weight too fast. This is very much a, when you're in this kind of calorie restricted setup, it's very much a starve as slowly as you can scenario, as opposed to, <laughs> is what it, at least what it turned into for me was, you know, we slow the inevitable as much as we possibly can. But one of the ways to do that was by really monitoring how much you got in and out. And when it came to really long chain carbohydrates like the root that i was using quite a lot of was uh, called uh false solomon seal root and it is a very strong tasting root anyone who's ever tried that will be familiar with this but i was nictimalizing the carbohydrate base so i would boil the roots then i would clean them and i'd chop them up and then i would double boil them again with lye water and leave them sit overnight because lye can break down long chain carbohydrates into shorter chain, more bioavailable carbohydrate. And so it was a way to make that food type more accessible because you can only eat so much plant food. That was the other thing I ran into. You just, you literally can't eat enough of it to get the calories that you need to stay alive because you're full. You just can't eat anymore. So you had to really break things down so that they were very, very digestible and more and less bulky. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Teresa Emmerich Camper. <laughs> That's a, <there's, laughs> I, I'm still just, yeah, I'm still just processing. Um, you pre-made a scale compared to the model of GoPro you knew you were going to have with you so that you could accurately monitor intake. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have to, that's a shout out to Michelle. She was the one who happened to mention, she's like, that thing weighs about 300 grams. I was like, oh, yeah. Really? And then it was like, <laughs> ah. So, uh, oh man. Um, so did, so did that happen in, like, where did you, what, like, I can't even say it. I'm so like, <laughs> you have a lot of time on your hands out there to think. Okay, there's a lot so of time. Like blown away. Um, so you made that process after launch, or was this preparing to go, or was this in? in oh, no, it was camp? after launch. It was long. It was long after launch. It was. Uh, I broke an arrow probably my second week out there, shooting at a grouse. Have you ever have yeah, you ever told this story publicly before, like out loud? No. No, I don't think I have that. So poor Michelle is about to get in trouble. <laughs> you told her how much the GoPro weighed? <laughs> how dare you guys talk beforehand? No, this was, it was a weird season because we were actually all in quarantine Oh, this was together. Michelle. Okay, this was Michelle. Michelle Wahlberg from, okay. I think you were saying like, yeah, a, like a production yeah. assistant, like one of the med crew. It was like, oh, well, no, they just no. got fired and there's a new rule. 
don't talk about camera weight when you're talking to the people. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. The, the camera weight was discussed long before I went out. Okay. But yeah, coming up with the scale and the bags and all that kind of nonsense was, yeah. So about... this means, um, and I think this is super cool. And, and I mean, I could be wrong again, but I think this is super cool. And I think this can be very fascinating for people. So this means that the um, absolute tank of a shelter that you decided to build was was that so that was very carefully weighed out every i mean every aspect every whatever you were using every tin full of dirt that you were taking out of there that was all very very calculated and thought out of Absolutely. what that was going yep. to do to you like down to the couple of calories it sounds like yeah yeah i have a pretty good idea of my physiology i'm a Someone I work out a lot. Um, I've been in sports my whole life. And so understanding your physiology has always been something that was advantageous for me. You know, it helped you be a better athlete. And it's just fascinating. It's one of my favorite parts of survival living is what you can do to your body and how much it can cope with and how it recovers. I think the recovery from alone afterward was just as interesting as the process of losing all of the weight and your muscle mass and um yeah but the, the process of putting it back on it's amazing how quickly your body fat percentage comes back up i was back to my normal weight in less than a month did you find your body trying to overcompensate no like no i never had that, that. sucked <laughs> i hate you and we're never yeah. doing that crap again so here's an extra <laughs> you know a couple percent or was it just some of the other participants have definitely talked about that said that their metabolisms the metabolisms went a little bit wacky afterward um i'm not sure if it's because this is something i actually have done previously and have done on a, a fairly regular basis since i was about 16. Um, going out for reasonable periods of time and yeah you lose some you put it back on but physiologically again our bodies are designed to drop fat and put fat back on we're, we're good at that that's what they're made for what took longer to recover from was the fact that I had so little protein out there that my body did self cannibalize its muscle mass to some degree. And so, you know, I went out being able to do, you know, 10 pull-ups and it took me six months to get back to that. You know, I came out being able to do one. You're like, mm. I'm surprised you could still do but one when you got out. I was always checking. I would check um, to make sure I could still do reasonable pull-up, reasonable push-up, a squat and stand back up because I wanted, you know, you've got a doctor, they monitor you, but you're with you all the time. And it is really your job as a participant to make sure that you're not pushing your body to a point where you're going to have serious issues coming back from. Yeah. And, you know, there's that red line. You want to push it right to that if you can. I mean, there's a lot of money on the line. You're going to do that thing. You did. But yeah, absolutely. But, you know, you, you, there is a place where you do have to be intelligent and just say, ah, yeah, right. Yeah, I know. I know I've got five, five, six more days left in me, but it's OK. We're close. This is close. This was close to being my call. And now it's your call. And yeah, life goes on. Well, one Somebody give me bait. One last question. This is there's been a couple of different squirrels here. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate it. I have loved every minute of this and I've learned <laughs> so much. Um, when you talk about, you know, you've got to monitor that line and obviously from what we've talked about, it sounds like, you know, pushing the button after the, by the way, I have to ask this, the, the life preserver, I'm assuming it was designed to go off 
in contact with water. It was yes. one of the ones that's like this, you know, this gets wet, poof. Did yep. was that something that you weren't aware of? Was that something that was maybe lost <laughs> lost in the starvation or were you just not planning on it getting wet? Oh no, no. It was uh so I had actually done a pre-run of this whole dumping a rock out in the lake thing. Mm -hmm. uh, we're required to wear these life vests. If you go in the water past your knees, you're technically supposed to have the life vest on. Like I said, we've got very good safety protocols. So the original life vest exploded in the water. I came out rather pissed off. And luckily that wasn't on camera because you got to hear me curse like a sailor. I was quite irate about it. Um, and the next time they came out to do a med check, I said, hey, I, one, I need a new life vest because obviously you can't use them again. And it needs to be one that does not self-inflate. I don't have a boat. I'm not falling out of a boat. Okay. Just find me one that is either already inflated, because who cares? Yeah. Or um, doesn't cord. inflate. Yeah, give me a pull, yeah, give me a pull cord. cord. Just because I'm going to go for a swim. They're, I was. They were told this is the plan. This is going to happen. You know, the safety crew needs to know these things. They, they need to know that you're going to go climb a cliff. They need to know that you're going to get in a boat. They when we have our little yellow box and we can send our old school texts where you push AAA, BBB to make the word. Yeah. They get told that you're going to go out. Yeah. And then you need to check in once you're safe and sound again, because that's how they make sure that everything is, is as happy. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, um, anyway, yeah. So I was given a new life vest. Everyone was of the opinion that this was not the kind that self inflated. I read the instructions. I also believed it did not self inflate. We were all wrong. Interesting. <laughs> that was that was what happened. At the end of the day, we were all wrong, and um, yeah, equipment crap happens. It does. But this particular little equipment malfunction meant that I spent a lot more time in that lake than I intended. You needed to, yeah. Than I needed to. It was going to be a fifteen-minute swim. I'd already tried it out. I had tested everything, and it was fifteen minutes. Um, yeah, thirty-five was pretty crazy that was pretty cool <laughs> did you so this was so all of that is to set up this um yep. did you get scolded for not like did someone when you like when all was said and done you're warmed up you're checking back in and you know you, i'm assuming you have to tell them like hey this thing just happened and i just about yes. it, it was not saying this text message <laughs> did anyone at every point any point be like you didn't push the button like you are, that's not okay. Like, did anyone ever kind of scold you for, for, I don't want to say taking that risk because the risk was already there, but for not tapping and nope. calling them out. Nope. Cool. No, 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 nobody ever did. They're, you know, they vet the people. They, they put treat you as professionals. Like they treat us as a professional. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, they expect you to be a big girl, a big boy. And make your decisions if your decision is to die on a beach rather than push a red button well you know that's what they'll put on your your coffin at the end she was an idiot <laughs> <laughs> there's the british um <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else you want to to mention or touch on before we wrap up today oh i think we've covered quite a lot of corners of the known universe here yeah, actually so uh... <laughs> this has been far ranging and and fantastic for me i really appreciate it Teresa. it's been an absolute pleasure i've learned a lot about a lot of different things today which i was really excited mm -hmm. for coming into this so thank you so much for your time thank you for your information thank you for your humor 
and thank you for being around still to share the stories. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, well, well, thanks so much for having me and we'll, yeah, talk to you in the future. I appreciate it. <laughs>